You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. In 2020, an estimated 1,806,590 new cases of cancer were diagnosed in the United States. Sadly, 606,520 people died from cancer. The most common cancers are breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and skin cancer. As of January 2019, there was an estimated 17 million cancer survivors in the United States. The number of cancer survivors is projected to increase to 22 million by 2030. As I speak of cancer this morning, it's quite likely that there are various people in this room who have been in the past diagnosed with cancer, perhaps even recently been diagnosed with cancer, Cancer ranging from the examples I gave, breast cancer to skin cancer and other ones not mentioned. Or those perhaps you have not been diagnosed with it, but you know others, friends, family, spouses, children that have. In fact, approximately 40% of men and women will be diagnosed with cancer at some point during their lifetimes. 40%. Cancer is a humbling disease because unlike some other diagnoses of medical conditions, to be diagnosed with cancer is to almost immediately be paired with the thought, am I going to live or am I going to die? Now that question is not unique to cancer. The reality is, to to say it just sort of -of matter-of-factly, everyone dies. The question is how and when But cancer brings that question from the background of our thought to the foreground. And it starts to ripple into our relationships. And it's because of it feeling so significant that we often find ourselves talking about trying to find the best doctors, the best hospitals, the the best treatment plans possible. We want to do anything we can to stack the deck in our favor with the hope of winning. We want to beat cancer. That's appropriate. It's understandable. And God has given us the gift of the scientific technology that we have, particularly in the West, that even just as short as 100 years ago, if you were to be diagnosed, though likely not even knowing what it was, you would have died. Well, come to the topic of cancer, realize there are sometimes conditions and situations you find yourself in that seem unexplainable as to how you're going to overcome it. For all of the hope you can have, for all the stories of others who've overcome it, I mean, after all, for every story there is of cancer, you can think of others, people who were perhaps diagnosed with the same cancer and give you hope. But the question is, is that going to be your story? You don't know. Well, this morning we come into seeing somebody who is in a similar condition. The problem is not a a medical diagnosis. It's a military one. 
The problem is not the sort of concept of hope and previous times of victory. The problem is a present reality and a lingering question. What am I going to do? What are we going to do? What is going to happen? Well, this morning we learn of this example in Joshua chapter 5. If you could open your Bibles there, if you've not done so already. For those of you who are new to Grace Church, it's our practice to kind of work our way through the Bibles. We'd love for you to just listen along, but we do have a copy of the Scriptures for you in the back there that you can grab by the Welcome Center. It's a gift for you. We want to make sure everybody's got an accurate, readable translation, and we're in the book of Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible. If you're not sure where to go, Joshua is just right after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the book of Joshua. It's sort of second telling going on here, what happens we come into Joshua, and here you can sort of summarize where we're going to be for this morning. You can say it like this. Joshua, by sort of summary lesson for this morning in Joshua 5 and Joshua 6, is this. Your battles are won by the Lord's hand. Your battles are won by the Lord's hand. To see this, particularly sort of unfold for us, look at four features this morning. First of all, listen and learn. Listen and learn. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through chapter 6, verse 5. Just track with me here. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall, bow, shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast of the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. In Joshua chapter 5, just by way of reminder, we came out of a section where they had just crossed the Jordan River, they didn't have the, the last thing that we would expect when people are always fearful about them coming. They didn't have a moment to renew their vows through circumcision. They didn't have the Passover, and they transitioned from taking manna, a daily provision from the Lord, to then eating from the fruit of the land. And in the seemingly final moment before Jericho happens, Joshua has a conversation with the person you would least expect in some regards. What's happening in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 is basically Joshua himself is not sending out spies. He's not sending out generals. Joshua himself has apparently gone out from where the people are 
to where Jericho is itself. He is really essentially trying to figure out how are we going to attack this city? The people of Israel have experience in combat, but they do not have experience in siege warfare. We're going to lay siege. We're going to attack the city. They've never done this before. So it's in the middle of that context that he is there, as it says there in verse 13, and who shows up? So he lifts his head. He looks, someone appearing before him with a sword on his waist. He has a sword. And this is a, this is a warrior. This is a battle. And so Joshua has a question basically like, who have I just encountered? Who is it that I've just come across? Friends, what you see here in the text of Joshua chapter 5 is not unique to only this time in the Bible. At other times throughout the Old Testament, you have what is known in sort of a theological term, a theophany. You're like, what's a big word? An appearing of God in human form. Specifically, many have speculated believing that this would be a Christophany, an appearing of Christ, the second member of the Trinity, which is shown throughout the Old Testament at different times, appearing in human form. In fact, you'll notice actually the sort of interaction he has with him. He asks him who he is. He says, I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worships him. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you know the last time that that kind of interaction took place? Was in Exodus with Moses at the burning bush. When God appeared in a burning bush, a bush that was on fire but would never be consumed a representation of the glory of God as God spoke to him in that situation. And God told Moses in that scene, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. You are in the presence of God. And Moses did so. And here you have now Joshua, Moses' successor, doing the exact same thing. But the conversation is not with the burning bush. The conversation is with a warrior. Some have asked the question, is this actually an angel he's talking to? After all, we have the examples in the scriptures where angels appear it's not the case. This person is definitely divine. The reason you know this is because of two features, one of which I've already referenced, the idea of it being holy ground. Secondly, what does Joshua do? He falls down and worships. He falls down and worships. Any time an angel was to appear, as I think about, for example, to Samson's parents, to tell them about the child they're about to give them, God's about to give them, they start to offer sacrifices, start to offer to this angel. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. I'm not God. I'm just a messenger. But here, this commander of the Lord's army receives the worship, giving us every reason to understand that this was God and his appearing. Notice the question that Joshua poses him at the beginning of their interaction. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? The Lord's answer is an interesting one. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Like, that, that wasn't why I was asking. I was asking, are you with us or are you with them? I want to know whose side you're on. What's significant to recognize is that the answer Joshua receives is not what he expected. And honestly, I think it's an answer that you and I might not expect as well. 
The reality is we often want to ask God and see God as being on our side for our purposes and for our plans. I mean, Joshua, after all, is doing the Lord's work, is he not? We've made that clear in the previous chapters. This seems like a foregone conclusion, and yet he's asking the question of this commander of the Lord's army, which we know to be God in his appearing, whose side are you on? And he essentially says, I am neither for you or your enemies. I am here to command the Lord's armies. It's not for Joshua to claim the allegiance of God for his cause, however right it was, but rather for God to claim Joshua. The two would fight together, but Joshua would be following the commander of the armies of the Lord in his cause and battles, rather than it being the other way around. And this is important for us by reflection for us as Christians today. As Christians, we have a tendency to call God to endorse our policies, our platforms, our personalities, our programs, rather than to simply follow God wherever he is leading. As a result, as Christians, the God we often speak of to many outsiders seems particularly conveniently more like our own creation, endorsing our own ideas. In fact, if you were to audit many of our own prayers, let's be honest, we're simply asking God to sign off on what we desire, to endorse what we want, to affirm what we believe is true, as opposed to doing what even Jesus, the Son of God, does himself in John 17. When he asks for the cup of wrath to pass, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There is a significant recognition here what's taking place in the text. This conversation continues into chapter 6. This is where we're not helped by the chapters and verse distinctions. Something added 1,500 years later. The reality here, what's happening in the text, is this conversation continues. There's a parenthetical comment about the state of the town of Jericho in verse 1, and the conversation picks back up in verse 2. But I want you to recognize is that the person of the commander of the army is really paired with this repeating theme that we saw in chapter three and four. It's the presence of the ark of the Lord. You remember earlier in chapter three and four, we saw that 18 times in two chapters, this repeating reference to the ark of the Lord, ark of the Lord, ark of the Lord comes up. Well, here we are again now in chapter six, 10 different times in chapter six. Is this brought up? Why? Because as we saw before, it's this repeating reminder that God is present with them. He is the one leading them, and the commander of the Lord's army is making this clear. What's happening here in the text is this conversation. Joshua goes from, what's my plan, verse 13, to learning what is God's plan. He learns what the Lord's plan is. And just think about this for your own reflection. The question should not be, how is God going to fit into your plan, but rather, how am I going to fit into God's plan? How am I going to fit into God's plan? And notice, notice where this conversation takes place. Notice what the sort of the orientation of it is, right? I mean, look at what happens, right? Verse 2 you have sort of this 
Clarification, Joshua says, I have given Jericho into your hand. And then verse three is, okay, here's what you're going to do. You shall march around the city for six days, something we'll talk more about here in a second. But, but what he is to do only precedes first what he is to worship. And you'll notice that's exactly what takes place first. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It says earlier in previous verse, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to my servant? The bigger question is not what are you going to do, but the bigger question is who are you going to worship? Too often, our engagement with the Lord is transactional. Lord, I'd like to know what you're going to do. I would like to tell you what I think I should do. Are we aligned? These are not bad prayer requests. I'm not trying to shame you for those kind of things to pray for, but I want you to understand the sequencing of what is important first. Not first, what are you going to do, but first, who are you going to worship? We can often be more interested in God directing us or even acting for us than we are being with us and us being with him. And what we see here with Joshua's examples, worship comes before his action, which takes us to the second observation to make, not only to listen and learn, but now shout and watch. This is where things get honestly crazy, if not confusing. Verse 6 of Joshua 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of rams and horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. They came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua was early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns, horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to his people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Jump down to verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Then all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, 
and they all captured the city. We'll stop there. Okay. So you just have got to understand, we're kind of like on deja vu from chapter 3 and 4. And then coming into chapter 5. Deja vu in this sense. You've had this sort of moments where the Lord has told Joshua the plan. And Joshua's like, all right, I believe. They're going to think I'm crazy. And so how are we going to get across the Jordan River? Here's the plan. Okay, now that we got across the Jordan River and everybody's scared to death of us, here's the plan. And every time you would imagine what the plan would be, it's like the last thing you would expect. Have you ever had that moment where you've been in a conversation with somebody and you kind of feel like you know where the story is going? And you're kind of like, oh, I can see this. I know where this is going. And you start to fill in for them. And they're like, no, it's actually not what happened at all. And you're like, oh, I, I, I will stop talking. Sorry, I, I was mistaken. I thought I knew where this was going. This would be a situation where probably any one of us would put our foot in our mouth. We would imagine, oh, Lord, I, I know where this is going. This is going to be great. We're now prepared. All the men have been circumcised. We're now ready for battle. This is going to happen. The promise has been made. we got a commander of the Lord's army. I mean, seriously, like we're rolling deep. This is going to happen. There's about 600,000 of us men ready to attack. It's overwhelmingly formidable, but we think we can do this. And he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get seven horns and seven trumpets and seven priests, and you're going to march for seven days. I'm sorry, what? Uh, you want me to do what? Yeah, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get your steps in. You're going to get your steps in. Not all of you, just some of you. You're going to get your steps in. And when you get done, you're going to be like, all right, now what? We'll wait for the next day and do it again. And then what? Oh, then you can do it again. I mean, are you serious? I'm serious. Lest there be any mistaking that we're somehow God's co-pilot in this military operation of look at our strength, there is nothing to point to, humanly speaking, as to what's going to secure this battle. It's overwhelming. Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days, seven circuits of the wall, and on the seventh day they're to blow these horns and all shout. The number seven often symbolizes completeness or perfection in the Bible. Let me give you a sense of what they're marching around. This city, this town of Jericho is about nine acres of land. But nine acres of land is this town. It's not overwhelmingly huge, but it has an outer wall and an inner wall. The outer wall is 20 feet tall, six feet wide. The inner wall is 30 feet tall and 12 feet wide. These two walls are separated by a 15-foot-wide guarded walkway. To come up to Jericho and figure out how are we going to attack the city, how are we going to get over the wall or get the people on the other side of the wall to come out to fight us when they are so clearly held up? In fact, you go back to what it says there in chapter 6, verse 1, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. It looks, it looks like the Fort Knox of a city. You cannot get in this thing and no one's coming out. And God's plan is take a walk. To trust him. And these trumpets, these trumpets are a particular type of trumpet. They're jubilee trumpets. 
They're used in connection with Israel's solemn feast to proclaim the presence of God. The conquest of Jericho was not therefore some exclusively military undertaking as it was a religious one. And the trumpets were declaring that the Lord of heaven and earth was weaving his invisible way, his invisible plans around the city. And God himself, in effect, was saying that these blasts being made was a declaration of God. Later on in the New Testament, it would say in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they have been encircled for seven days. The story of Jericho is not simply retelling the facts, though everything you're reading is factual. The story that's being retold is by God, through his servant Joshua, for God's people in the centuries to follow, including you and me sitting here today in Miami. Honestly, by all human reasoning and assessment, no battle strategy appeared to be more unreasonable and foolish than this one. And yet, this is often how the world, Lord works. In a way that cannot be humanly explained, in a way by which you've got to imagine, people are like looking over the walls like, are you kidding me? Like, imagine if you're a resident of Jericho and you're like, okay, we have been scared to death of these people. We have heard about them 40 years ago and they parted through the Red Sea as Rahab's testimony illustrated. We have heard of them walking through the Jordan River and the river literally suspended for them. We know the God of heaven and earth is on their side. And now they're going to go for a walk around our, our town. Maybe, maybe we got the PR wrong. Maybe we're going to be okay. You've got to imagine that the people of Israel looked overwhelmingly foolish to the residents of Jericho. And yet they walked by faith, day in and day out, for the entire week. I cannot help but to think of the foolishness by which people think of God's people with, by remembering 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I just want to be clear, friends, if you're trying to maintain faithfulness to the Lord as a Christian, and yet never compromise at all in what people who are not Christians think of you as being intellectually inferior, being naive and mythologically tied to some old religious fables, uh, maybe being a hater of people and unjust and unloving and a bigot. Friends, and you're somehow trying to kind of, you know, have your cake and eat it too, that I want, I want to be on the Lord's side and I want the respect of men around me. You cannot have both. Uh, to follow the Lord is to follow him into places where the rest of the world will call and consider you overwhelmingly foolish. I mean, you put your trust in a man who lived 2,000 years ago as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins. Because you actually believe that man is actually the God man. 100% man, 100% God. He is the son of God. And that claim is not just outlandish, it's actually supported by his resurrection. And yet, how commonly it would have been thought of as being overwhelmingly foolish. And yet, we see here in the text, what does God want them to do? It's what he wants them to watch. Watch and see the Lord work. Takes us to number three, remember and forgive. Remember and forgive. 
a profound story that we learned back in Joshua 2. We come back to here in Joshua 6. She's referenced first in verse 17 and then picks up again in verse 22. Go with me, if you would, to verse 17. It says, In the city that all those within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom she, excuse me, whom we sent. Jump down to verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from here the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mothers, mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out, they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of the bronze of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. I mean, they would have known about her by this point because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Remember and forgive. In the midst of this destruction, in the midst of this devastation, yet there is still salvation. Salvation for Rahab and her family. This is not saying that Rahab earned her salvation. This repeating phrase here about how she hid the messengers whom, she, whom we sent. This is not a statement saying she transacted with God. If I do for you, God, you do for me. Instead, what's showing is that she is acting out what she already believed by her statement back in Joshua 2. She believed that the Lord was the God of all heaven and earth, that he would judge the world according to his righteousness, but that there could be mercy found in him. She was judged for a time not being a follower of Yahweh, but now she was forgiven. She was rejected, but now she was accepted. And in verse 25, she now lived with Israel. I mean, just imagine Imagine how wonderful this is. Just think about this in this context here. It's sitting here this morning in Miami, in this room here at Grace Church. There are some of you who were like others of us, not raised in Christian families, did not come from good homes. Uh, you maybe never know your father, maybe never knew your mother. Maybe you did, but maybe you did not live well with them in a relationship. Or regardless of whether you did, maybe you went out and you did some crazy things in this world and you've done crazy things, you've taken drugs, you've slept around, you've just done things that you're really, really embarrassed by and you know do not honor the Lord. You might feel like, you know what? I'm not like these people. These people, they, they look nice. They, they look cleaned up. They, they've got Bibles. They, they're so friendly. I, they don't know my story. I, I'm Rahab. I'm the one who is the prostitute. I'm the one who is the stripper. I'm the one who is the drug dealer. That's my background. I, I probably don't belong in a place like this. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in the prince of the power of this world, walking according to the, 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 the demons, if you will, the, the teachings of Satan, if you will, and yet by his grace, he saved us. In other words, though the details of our story before Christ might differ, the position does not. Once lost, now found. In fact, the stories of Rahab in the midst of the people of Israel actually profoundly reminded them that what they sung in their Psalms was true in their gathering. 
God is merciful. God saves. God loves. Friend, do you understand that if you are here this morning thinking that you are somehow the exception to the rule and that maybe you feel like you don't belong because of what you've done? Friend, if you fall upon the mercy of the Lord and find forgiveness in Christ, all the more do you need to understand that's why you should be here. To remind all of us, not just yourself, of the greatness of God. I think what's so remarkable about Rahab, that's what I said a couple of weeks ago, she goes on to be the great-grandmother of King David. And if you go to Matthew 1, don't go there now, but to see the lineage of Rahab, she's a part of the family tree of our Savior. <laughs> that is crazy. That is so crazy cool. Think about that. I guarantee you, Rahab's like, yeah, I'm not really lining up to be in the lineage of the savior of the world. I'm just trying to get saved for me and my family. She had no clue of God's plan for her life. I think it's true of probably most people sitting in this room. You have no clue God's plan for your life. You don't have to have a clue. You just have to know the God who has that plan. Do you realize God has a plan for your life? It's not your responsibility to figure it out. It's your responsibility to trust him and follow him. That's exactly what Rahab did. She was used in radical ways as is shown in history, even referenced in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Fourth and final, repent and receive. Repent and receive. In Joshua 6, verse 21, it says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Later on in verse 26, it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall, be, shall he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. The story of Jericho becomes the first of several accounts of destruction that makes readers like you and me by default, feel very uncomfortable. This is the part we want to like, we're tempted to like turn the page of our Bible, get to something a little bit, a little bit easier, a little bit sweeter. There's two mistakes to make when interpreting these events. Mistake number one is that God is cruel and indiscriminately wiping out innocent people. That's commonly what people think. God is cruel and just indiscriminately wiping out innocent people. The truth is God is patient. Genesis chapter 15, he speaks about this four generations ago. He said in verse 13 through 16, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is talking about Israel in Egypt. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go up to your fathers in peace, meaning you're going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, his descendants, shall come back here. He's talking centuries before they actually get here. In the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's talking about the people in the land of Jordan at that time, centuries before. He's like, God is patient. God's not only patient, God's also holy. Speaking of these people in this place, in Leviticus chapter 18, 
It says in verse 22 through 25, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal. And so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Why? For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. God is saying and has been saying, and even Rahab knew this herself, God is coming in judgment and he is right to do so. And none of us are gonna stand if he judges based upon what we've done. The first mistake to make would be that when interpreting these events is that God is cruel and indiscriminately wiping innocent people. Second mistake is that Israel was righteous, holier than thou group of people, and that's why the Lord chose them. This also would be false. In fact, God repeatedly warns Israelites to not go after and get in bed with these other nations. But later in their history, that's exactly what they do, and God uses other nations to judge them. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses nine through 12. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's right. People literally killed their kids to the God of Moloch by setting them on fire as an opportunity to worship a false God. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The conquest of the land is not a gross injustice, but a display of great patience and a married to, married to holy justice. Here's the problem I think we often have when we look at these events. The problem is that we look at it, we look at it wrongly. Take, for example, the existence of hell. Many Christians have felt cringy and apologetic about the existence of hell as taught by Jesus himself, either by wanting to apologize for it or not talking about it at all. But here is the problem. We're focusing on the punishment to the neglect of considering the sin that such a punishment would be provided for as a response. This shows how small a view of sin we actually have, ours or other people's, and how small of a view of holiness of God that we have. You know who does not have a small view of sin? God. You know how you know that? Because he sent his son. He would sacrifice his son to deal with otherwise the wrath that we deserve, to make payment for otherwise what we could never ourselves accomplish. John 3, verses 16 through 19, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in this, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Friend, nothing has changed from the pages of Joshua to 2023 living here in Miami. Nothing has changed. God is holy. God is patient. God is just. And God is forgiving. You only have to read the biography of Rahab to be reminded of that. And the question is, where are you in that consideration? Are you one who, like Rahab, has come to the Lord and say, have mercy? by believing in his son and putting your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you one crying out, how unjust, how unjust, how unfair? Friends, you would be reading the Bible wrongly, interpreting it selfishly, and be condemned for an eternity for rejecting the hope of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.